Well, my name is Brandon. Um, as he said, welcome to our first 5 p.m. Um, gathering. Let me, let me say this. Uh, I look around the room and I see a number of you who served this morning, um, who then, in an effort to serve Sojourn, came back and gathered on Sunday night by creating space uh, in the mornings. And uh, I want to thank you for that. And then also I want to pitch something to you. Uh, if, if there are other members that you know that come to the 9 o'clock and you want to try to recruit them to the 5 o'clock, that is perfectly okay, all right? The 11 o'clock, say it's all right, you stay where you are. But five, uh, 9 o'clock, say, I want you to come to the 5 o'clock with me. As we said, we're in a series called Life Together, uh, where we're simply asking the question, what does it look like for us as a community to follow Jesus uh, and to do it together? And so for this series, we, um, a couple weeks ago, did something unique where we uh, got our parish leaders together, those that can make it. We were in this back room over there, and we just said, hey, what... What might it look like for us to live life together? Uh, And the reason we did that is because we did not want this series to simply be my hope for Sojourn or our staff's hope for Sojourn or our pastor's hope for Sojourn, but we wanted this to be, Lord willing, a reflection of our collective heart for our church here at Sojourn Heights. And so last week we opened up and said that we are saints, which means that we are holy, and we are a holy people fighting to become holy. And this week we move to our second identity, and so let's get started. If we did a, uh, if we did a street survey, just kind of rolled on the street, asked the average Houstonian, said, hey, uh, finish the sentence for me. The church is. Uh, we would get a variety of answers, but there probably would be some themes that they revolved around. Um, one theme would be um, the church is old-fashioned and outdated, right? It was good for the 50s. Um, it, it fit once upon a time, not so much today. We, we might hear uh, things like the church is a building. And so um, we, we reflect this when we say things like this, oh man, that is a beautiful church. Uh, we think uh, the church, or we might hear the church is a religious event. Um, and so we think, hey, I go to church. We say, I go to church, and what I'm saying with that is I'm going to this religious event. I even asked a friend of mine uh, who's been a Christian for a long time, I said, hey man, finish this for me. The church is, and he said, it's a place where you worship Jesus. Um, And it is certainly true that we do worship Jesus, uh, but do you hear the first word that he said? It's a place, a place that you go. And so here's what I want to do today. Uh, I I want to ask Galatians to finish the sentence, the church is for us. And Galatians is going to say that the church is a family, but it's going to be far more robust than simply the word family. And so let's get started. Galatians 3, 23. Now, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the guardian, until the coming faith would be revealed. The faith here, just shorthand for Christ, which will become clear right now. Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And so Paul, the author of Galatians here, he starts out with some history and he just says, hey, listen, God gave a law, uh, which is the moral, spiritual expectations for his people. And that law was a guardian. It was there to guard 
uh, the people of Israel. Um, and as its guardian, what a guardian did was a guardian was there to guard, to guide, and to protect. And so the law would protect Israel by saying, hey, Israel, here's the boundary. Like, you stay inside this boundary, things are going to go okay. You get outside the boundary, then you're going to make a mess of your life. The obvious illustration is imagine you've got a five-year-old, six-year-old out in a front yard, cars flying by. The law says, hey, don't go out in the street. Hey, hey, son, daughter, don't go out in the street. It's not safe out there. Stay right here. In here is where it's safe. This, this is inside this law. This is where uh, and how I wired the world to work. Live in here. But it would also guide. It would also guide Israel as it said, hey, this is who God is. This is what God is like. Here's your need for Christ as it would lead them to Christ, which was his point, right? That the law was a guardian until Christ came so that we would be justified by faith. Now I need to pause. I need to camp out on something for just a second. Most of us in this room are Western Christians. We were born um, in the West. And in the West, when we think of salvation, generally speaking, here's what we think. We think salvation equals justification. That we have a very partial view of what salvation is. And so justification is this declaration where God declares you to be right and righteous and just. And so uh, when we think salvation, we think justification. God has declared me to be righteous in his sight. But that is a partial view of what salvation is. And the problem is that a partial view of salvation will always, always, always lead to a partial view of the church. And so what happens is because we view salvation as a declaration, the church then becomes a collection of individuals who have had something about them declared. Not a people who have actually been changed, but a people who have had something declared about them. This is both a product of individualism and it fuels our individualism. And so what's the solution? The solution is verse 26. 26 and 27, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In these two verses right here is the fountainhead of your salvation. Like you want to you know the wellspring that everything in your salvation flows out of? It's two little words, in Christ. Christ. In Christ. Baptized into Christ. It is the wellspring that your salvation flows out of, that at the heart of your salvation is in Christ. I want to read to you what one theologian had to say about it. One New Testament scholar said, being in Christ, I want y'all to see, like, we will not be able to talk about family if you don't see this. One New Testament scholar said being in Christ is the essence of the Christian experience. Without treating the in Christ, we miss the heart of the Christian message. We are in Christ. When we are in Christ, every part of Christ's life, not only his death, has significance for us. All that is his becomes ours. Let me summarize. 
at the core of Christianity is two words, in Christ. It is the central theme, the central message, the central proclamation. When I was 22, when I became a Christian, this is what happened. I went from not being in Christ to being in Christ. Now, whatever point you went from not a Christian to a Christian, listen, I have three kids, a fourth on the way. I am praying and pleading and begging and begging that their story would be this. I don't remember a day I didn't believe. I desperately want that for them. But there is a point where my kids who don't remember not believing, Lord willing, will have gone from out of Christ to in Christ. This is the central theme of the Christian. It is why, it is why, listen to me, this is why Christianity is utterly unique. This is why it is utterly unique from every other world religion because what Christianity does not offer is another religious moral code where you just work your way up a ladder. If I'm good enough, and I'm good enough, and I'm good enough, and I'm good enough, and finally I'm good enough, I walk my way up the moral ladder and God says, you made it, you can come into my presence now. It does not offer another religious moral code. What Christianity offers is the chance to be in Christ and Christ to be in you. It is utterly unique. And since what we have in common is our shared union with Christ, verse 28 can now be true. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Listen, Paul is not saying that categories don't exist anymore. He is not saying um, that there's no longer men and women, male and female, that everybody's a hybrid. He's not saying there are no more slaves, there are no free men. He is saying that your primary identity is no longer based on race, class, or gender. That your primary identity is that you are in Christ and you are one in Christ. And the categories that Paul chose here were brilliant and intentional. And in Paul's day, just like in ours, most social division, most cultural division was based on what? Race, class, gender. And Paul is saying, not in the church. Not in the church. You are are one in Christ. Why Why was there social division? Because every culture, every culture under the sun has had superior classes, races, genders. Paul is saying there is no one superior inside the church. Which, by the way, is a side note, not part of the sermon, but I'm going to tell you, would have been, when he said male, female, would have been first time in human history. I mean, nowhere has anyone ever said that. Male, female, equal terms, heirs together, never. So the argument, is the Bible chauvinistic? Does it oppress women? Certainly the Bible has been used to oppress women. That's not in the Scriptures. The Scriptures do nothing but lift women up. Which means that if you are poor, Christ doesn't look down on you. And if you are rich, Christ doesn't praise you. If I could say it this way. If your great-great-grandfather was a slave, he was not being cursed by God. And if you are rich, you are not being blessed by God. Or at least it doesn't mean that. 
So if we need the action item, right, if Paul were in the room and, and we said, hey, Paul, I, I, I hear what you're saying, man, one in Christ, primary identity, I'm with you, man, I'm on the team, like, I, I want that too. What's my action item, though? What do I do with this? What do I do with this? Here's, here's what I think Paul would say to us. I think Paul would say, here's what I want the church. I want the church to be the people who empower those who the world oppresses. The superior race, class, gender always oppressed. And the audience he was writing to, the, the Jew, the free, and the male would have been the superior race, class, gender. He's saying, I want the church to be different. I want the church to be different. You have a new identity, united in Christ, one in Christ. And now, because you have a new identity in Christ, that you are one in Christ, verse 29 is going to say it comes with a new family. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And in Christ, it's not just a new identity, but a new family that God said to this man named Abraham, hey Abraham, back in Genesis, I want you to leave your family to go start a new family. And through that family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we now know that that family is those who are in Christ, those Jews, Gentiles, slave, free, male, female, you are heirs according to promise. But in this Family, all that belongs to the Father belongs to the Son, and all that belongs to the Son belongs to you. That's what it means to be an heir. This is why it would have been so astounding what Paul said about men and women. That that in first century world, the son was the heir, not the daughter. And here he puts them on equal terms and says, You are heirs. One in Christ. Never, never would they have said slave, free, co-heirs in what God offers. Not until Galatians shows up. Or Jesus showed up. It's probably more biblical and more Christian to say it that way. In Christ we have a new identity and a new family. And now Paul's gonna, he's going to back up and he's going to say where the need for in Christ came from. Galatians 4, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So he steps back and he says, okay guys, listen, this is what I mean. Um, When you're a child, you're basically a slave because as a child, you don't own anything. You haven't actually received your inheritance yet. And so Israel, under the law, you're, a, you're like a child. You don't own the inheritance yet. You're waiting on the inheritance to come. And now in verse 3, uh, Paul's going to narrow, not that, narrow the funnel. And he's going to go from Israel to you. In the same way we also, in the same way we also, we were children. When we were children, were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. In the same way, in the same way that Israel uh, was waiting on their inheritance, and that was a, in the way that there was a time when Israel was waiting on Christ to come into the world, there was a time when you were waiting on Christ to come into your life, and while you were waiting, you were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. And so if we're going to know what Paul's talking about here, we need to ask what the elementary principles of the world are. It's a difficult phrase to interpret, translate, 
Uh, and so the way that one commentator summarized it, he said, listen, it's the, the fabric of humanity. Uh, think money, sex, power. And the grammatical way that Paul wrote this, if I could be a language nerd for a second, the way he wrote it, he, he wrote it in such a way that he said this, man, you, you can't even control that you are enslaved to money, sex, and power. You were born enslaved. You can't even control. And then he wrote it in such a way that it said it's not, not just something that happened to you, but the effects are still ongoing. And if we could pause and maybe do some uh, maybe heart-level conversation real quick, that there are some of us in this room and who every week we come into this room and then we go to our parish gatherings and we sing and we raise our hand and then we go and uh, we share a meal with others all the while we are still enslaved to money, sex, and power. We are lusting after it. We still believe that there is a life that I don't have that if I just made enough, if I were just desirable enough, if I were just powerful enough, if I just made it to that rung on the ladder that I want to get to, my life would be the life that I want. And listen to me, it is destroying your soul. And not only that, not only is it destroying your soul, it is kryptonite to church as family. If you don't know what kryptonite is, it's what Superman couldn't eat or take or something that he couldn't have or he would die. I don't do sci-fi. I just knew it meant he couldn't have it. I don't do sci-fi because I do entertaining. Um, I don't do boredom. That's why I don't do sci-fi. Um, <laughs> here's the point. <laughs> Unchecked lust after money, sex, and power will destroy church's family. I mean, it will destroy it. Which is why we need what comes next. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That Jesus entered the world to redeem. He entered the world to open the door and to set those captive to the law free and to unenslave us from the elementary principles of money, sex, and power. Set the captives free. That's how Jesus said it. But we're not just saved out of something. We are saved into something. So what are we saved into? Keep reading. That's to redeem. Verse 5, those who were under the law. So that, here it is. So that. So that. Not just, just, not just, what you've been justified from, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. And what we're saved into is we're saved into our adoption, adopted into a family. 
How? By the Spirit being poured out into your heart. This is why, listen, over and over and over we say, hey, sojourn, don't buy the lie that what Jesus is after is external moral conformity. The Spirit was poured into your heart that you might be changed from the inside out. He is not looking for religious performance. He is looking for your heart to be transformed and your worship to be full and free. That's what he's after. How spirit poured out, been adopted. And listen to the next thing he says. Crying, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We are adopted into a global family. A global family that cries, Abba, Father. And listen, some of you are not going to like the next thing I say. That's my buffer. But to not see the church as a family is to not see God as a father. I warned you. Listen, we are adopted into a family that has God as its Father, and if we are adopted brothers and adopted sisters, for me to look at you and say, you're not my brother, you're not my sister, is to say, we don't share the same father. At the heart of who we are is an adopted family. Cries out, Abba, Father, and I want to talk about this word crying because listen this Paul when he wrote this was under no theological obligation to use the word crying he he had an arsenal of words he could have chosen like he could have chosen anything it could have been uh, uh, declared said spoke like there is no end to to the words that Paul could have used and he chose a word crying that literally means a vehement outcry vehement outcry listen to the way one commentator said this. I, I mean, listen to this. The only other person who cries this way is Jesus. I don't have to read anything else. In fact, this is the cry he uttered in the Garden of Gethsemane. His final hour had come. He was staring death in the face. No doubt, he was also coming to terms with the suffering he was about to endure on the cross, his soul was in utter anguish. And at precisely that moment, he voiced this cry, Abba, Father. The cry, Abba, Father, is the son's cry of distress to his loving, heavenly Father. It's his way of addressing his Father in his time of greatest need. Yes, this is a cry of intimacy and dependence, but it is even more fundamentally a cry, a response to pain, something one utters in the face of suffering or in the midst of hardship. Listen to me, sojourn. The privilege of adoption is the privilege of tears. The privilege of adoption is the privilege of tears. And when we are adopted into a family, we're adopted into a family where it's safe to cry together and to cry out together, Abba, 
father. My son, yesterday, he's five, he had his first t-ball game uh, ever, um, which, you know, he did pretty good. Uh, he forgot to run to first base after he hit. Uh, he had one ball hit to him, which I'm sure he would have caught if he wasn't waving to us in the stands. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uh, and I, um, here's what I love most about the t-ball game, uh, is that I'm fairly extroverted, and so uh, when I have a, a stand full of, you know, 25 people or practice, like all adults, and I've never met them, that's like my dream scenario right there, and so I can just kind of make my way and talk to everybody and distract them all their sons and watch them try to listen to me but really pay attention to the field. It's, uh, it's, a, it's more of a hobby now than anything really. Um, but if I went up to one of those dads and I said, hey, man, how's it going, blah, blah, and I started talking about the game and their son and whatever, that's normal, right? But if I looked at him and I said, hey, man, how, how you going? How you doing? I said, I'm good. Uh, and I said, hey, buddy. My dad never said he loved me. I mean, he never even hugged me. And then I started to cry. How do you think he'd respond? it would probably be a little awkward, right? Why? Because strangers don't cry together. Generally speaking, crying together is something that families do. Generally speaking, crying together is something that families do. It's not something dads at a t-ball game do, but we're not just a family who cries together. We're also heirs through God. Where God says that my most prized possession belongs to you my adopted son, that in Christ all that I have belongs to you. And so here we are, adopted community, back where we started, asking Galatians, hey, can you finish the sentence for me? The church is, and here's what I think Galatians' answer is, that the church is a community of people who live out their shared identity as adopted brothers and sisters who together share the privilege of tears. In other words, the church is a family living life together. So here's the question, Sojourn. How are we going to do this here? Like, How are we going to live out? What is it going to take for us to live out the family that we are? What's necessary for us to become the family that we long to be? And I'm going to give you three things. There are probably more, but I'm going to give three. Priority, proximity, longevity. Priority. We have to prioritize relationships for those relationships to foster. This is, this is not high-level uh, sociology. This is common sense, right? If I don't invest in a relationship, that relationship will not flourish. It's not going to flourish, right? I have to invest in this relationship for its work. And listen to me. CrossFit knows this. <laughs> I quit my gym, thought, I need a gym. Um, I'm going to go check out CrossFit. Everybody else is doing it. I might as well try. I walk in. Um, I sit down with a girl, and no joke, first thing she said to me, hey, listen, don't worry. We have a lot of people join the gym who really don't work out. Um, thank you for that. Uh, I can do 10 push-ups in a row. Can you? Uh, so we go through the thing, we're out. It's very intimidating, by the way. Um, I wanted to apologize. I was like, I eat potato chips. I know I shouldn't do it. I'm so sorry. Uh, we go out there, and she's like, hey, could you do a pull-up? And I was like, uh, I can hang on the bar. Um, is that the same? And 
Uh, and then we get to the end, and she said this. We're not just a gym, we're a community. Monthly, we do these happy hours, and we do, uh, we, we do pool parties, and then we do a Christmas party, and here's what we ask. Listen to this. Here's what we ask. We ask that if you can make it, you come. Why? What does the intimidating girl at CrossFit know? I'm sorry. I've run that one out way too long. What does she know? She knows that if you don't invest in a community, that community doesn't flourish. Can I do some real talk with some of us? Can we have some real talk? Family? Some of us are more committed to our college buddies or our college friends, ladies, and more intentional about carving out time for our college friends than we do our church, and then we complain that our relationships inside the church aren't deep enough. If you don't prioritize your adopted family, right, if CrossFit is going to ask you to prioritize them, how much more should the adopted family of Abraham in Christ prioritize their relationships? And listen, I am not for a second talking about uh, or trying to say that we should not have relationships outside of our local church. Next week, we're going to talk about mission. We absolutely should. Um, it is an imperative on the church to have relationships outside the church. I am saying that if you don't prioritize relationships inside the church, church as family will always be theology. It'll never be practice. Never. Priority. Proximity. I have a brother in Georgia and a sister in Colorado, um, and we are objectively family, but our experience of family would be drastically different if we lived in the same city. I, I called my brother this week. Uh, he didn't call me back, which is fine because I don't call him back, and that's kind of how we live. But if I were being consumed with the elementary principles of the world, if my life were unraveling out of my pursuit of money, sex, and power, my brother would not know it in Georgia if I didn't tell him. No way for him to see it in my life. But how much easier if we're in the same city, we just can see one another and our lives can overlap for him to just naturally see, hey, Brandon, I see some things in your life that are going sideways. How much more rich would our experience of family be if we were living near one another? And then the beauty, the beauty of church proximity is this, that we don't get to pick our family. Like I didn't pick Tyler in Georgia. I probably would have, but I didn't. Sometimes I wouldn't have. But that's the beauty of family, right? Sometimes we wouldn't pick one another. But here we are, being this beautiful, hybrid mesh of people called the church, adopted brothers and sisters. And when we don't get to pick one another based on our preferences, we get to display our shared identity in Christ. Listen, when what we're known for isn't that we're fellow Aggies or that we like craft whatever, or that we're lawyers, or engineers, or 
teachers, or you name it. But if what we're known for is our shared identity, the oneness that we have in Christ, how much more rich the family of Abraham can we be? And when we can't get away from one another, do you know how beautiful that is? I'm not kidding. Like, like I shouldn't use my parish as an example. Um, I don't have an example. Um, how beautiful it is, though. Like, we just can't get away from one another. It's why, it's why, like, small illustration. I, we're in a two-story townhome right now. Uh, and whenever my kids are just wearing on my nerves, it is too easy for me to say, hey, go up to your room, get away from me. But if, if we're living life overlapping near one another, we can't simply always just say, hey, go get away from me. And we have to be iron sharpening iron. And then longevity. Longevity. Um, being an adopted family takes time. And if I could quote a parish leader from two weeks ago, some of us have been committed to an iPhone longer than we have a church. Um, I did yard work yesterday for the first time in like seven years. Um, I'm not kidding. The only person I know that hates yard work more than me is my son. Uh, it's discipleship. I did a good job with him. And he came outside, I'd cut down the bushes, and he was picking them up and putting them into the trash can, and my son said, oh, this is not fun. And my wife heard it and said, you're right, son, it's not fun, but we're a family, and sometimes in a family, we have to do work together. Part of doing work together as a family is being willing to put down roots and say, I'm in with you. And you're going to drive me crazy, and I'm going to drive you crazy, and there's going to be times we laugh, and times we cry, and times we clash but I'm in and we're going to do work to be a family. And eventually, eventually in that family, tears become safe. And so Brandon, what if I got offered a job in Boston? Does this mean I can't take it? It's pretty cold there, so you probably shouldn't. <laughs> but does it mean I can't take it? Of course it doesn't mean you can't take it. We're not a cult. But here's what it does mean. It does mean that you consider your family when deciding whether to take it. It does mean that you don't just do what's best for you because it's best for you, but you consider how it affects the people around you when making life decisions. It means that you bring them into the decision-making process. Like if you lived on the same street with your mother, your father, three sisters, seven brothers, and 14 cousins, and every Sunday night, it would be the weirdest street of all time. But if every Sunday night you did a family dinner, you would never, never would you show up to that dinner and just say, hey, guys, took a job in Boston. I'm out. I leave Tuesday. You would come and you would say, hey, I, I got offered a job in Boston. This is what it is. This is when they want me to start. What do you guys think about it? Help me make this decision doesn't mean you can't take it. It means, or that you don't take it, it means that you think about how it affects the people around you and you bring family into the decision-making process. Why? Because when we open up the Scriptures, here's what we see. 
we see you are a family. Go and become who you are. Like last week, you are holy. Go and become who you are. Here we see you are a family. Go and become who you are. We don't see, hey, go and try to feel like a family, and one day you might become one. We see objectively you are a family. Now go and be who you are. Go and be the family Christ died for you to be. And listen, last week at the members meeting, I said this. Here's what I said. And I want this to be a stake in the ground for us. I I said, listen, by God's grace, our church has grown and is growing, and we love it. This is beautiful. We're gathering at 5 p.m. now with the same number of people in this room that were here at 9.15, July 1st, 2014. Do you know that? Beautiful. And, and, and holiness always has to be fought for. Listen, it doesn't matter if your church is 25, 250, 25,000. Anyone can hide from anyone. Mission next week. As our church grows, there become more and more opportunities for us to engage our neighborhood and our city, which is common sense, right? When you're three, you can't do as much as when you're 30. 30, not as much as 300. 300, not as much as whatever, as long as the Lord protects you from mission drift. But family, family, that's the one that's going to get exponentially harder, and it's going to take fight. It's going to take fight in us, us being willing to fight for it. Us being willing to put down roots and say, I'm willing to fight with his people to be the kind of family Christ died for us to be. It takes fight. It will not be easy. But a prayer is that what God might do is to make us more of who we are. Adopted brothers and sisters, co-heirs in Christ, a place where it's safe to cry. A place where there are no superior classes, races, or genders. But a group of people who are one in Christ. May this be who we are. May we be the family that we are. Father, we love you and we bless you and we thank you for this room. We thank you for the same for these men and women gathering here today, sitting under this word, coming to the table, coming to the table as a family, coming and saying, I want these to be my people. And pray that you would make us more of who we are, that we might experience the family that we are meant to be. It's going to take prioritizing relationships. We know that. It's going to take being willing to live near one another. We know that. It's going to take longevity. We know that. Lord, would you birth that in us? We pray in Christ's name.